Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. Um, anyway, this interpreter um, said to my parents, uh, she's going to be 16 soon, and she's going to be able to do whatever she wants. So if you want to control your daughter, you've got to get her out of the country. So that's what they did at 15. The interpreter who was hired by social services. Yeah, 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 yeah. Today, I'm speaking with Sadia Hamid, a spokesperson for the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain, who has a quite remarkable story to tell. She holds some strong and damning views and has a knack for getting them across in a way that's both persuasive and often comical. Having grown up in England, Sadia was tricked in her teens into moving to Pakistan, where she was abused, starved and tortured, while her family out there tried to work out whether she had slept with a white man. Sadia isn't just the sum of her experiences. She's also outspoken on issues such as women's rights and human rights, while, as you might expect, damning of religious extremism, with a particular focus on Islam. She can't talk too much about the work she does, but it involves domestic abuse that is often hidden in religion's guise of righteousness. She talks about what it was actually like to be so hungry that she thought she might die, and gives us an insight into the last few decades in the history of the UK's South Asian immigration. It appears that what angers her more than anything is a recurring theme on this podcast, the refusal of social justice warriors to look in some of the most obvious places. Like Yasmin Mohammed, who was on the podcast just a few weeks ago, Sadia shakes with rage at so-called progressives who appear to move heaven and earth to help a young white girl in trouble, but who think it's fine for a young brown girl to be tortured, raped, and forced to marry. Most shockingly in this episode, she tells of a social services translator who actually warned her parents they should lock her up and send her away before she's of age. That's somebody who actually works for Britain's social services. You might notice that I am a bit more familiar and forward with Sadia, even while she's talking about abhorrent experiences. I took some liberties with regards to humour and that's partly because I'd already spoken to her a couple of times for her channel. I've spoken about this before, and it's one of the perks of the job. 
uh, by talking about such profound or sensitive topics, you really do get to establish a strong bond with both you, the listener, and the fascinating people who come on this show. And it was clear to me from the off that Sadia had a really great sense of humour and is able to slip seamlessly from tragedy to comedy. We got on so well, in fact, that we ended up speaking for hours, so I've done something I've never done on the show before, which is to split this into two parts, this being the first, and the bonus content for patrons will be at the end of the second one, which will come out in a couple of weeks. Remember you can watch video clips from the interviews on youtube.com slash andrewgold1, as well as shorter ones on Twitter and Instagram on andrewgold underscore ok. You'll find Sadia on Twitter and Instagram on at sadia936. And her own YouTube channel is called Four Freedoms and features interviews related to different kinds of freedoms. Four of them, actually. Also, my weekly chat rooms link is in the show notes. It's Thursday, uh, but note that this week, Thursday the 11th of March, is going to be at 7pm GMT UK time rather than 8pm. So an hour earlier. Uh, I look forward to seeing you. I love seeing new people turning up each time. It's free. You don't have to sign up or download anything. And we just chat about all the shows and the future episodes and things like that. So I hope to see some more of you there, even if it's just to say hello for a minute. Uh, But for now, on with the show. Right, so tell me, what can can you tell me anything about your what you do for work? Yeah, so I uh, I work in domestic abuse, um, and I run a small organisation. It's a second tier organisation um, that specialises in harmful traditional practices. Um, so that entails delivering training uh, and professional advice to. Uh, so the kind of advice is for frontline professionals. Um, and training to professionals that would support any client experiencing things like honor-based violence, forced marriage, FGM. And there's kind of there's about 16 different um, harmful traditional practices. Um, and there's kind of um, new stuff being identified all the time. Um, so it, like it's interesting, some stuff entered into the mainstream um, uh, in, in Britain to start off with it was something that just affected like certain communities right um and then it became sort of mainstream so acid attacks for instance i don't know if you remember the stories um a few years ago that where you know young um yeah, I don't want to call them young people i want to call them like uh young degenerates or something like going mm. around on mopeds with acid chucking acid in people's face and that then it became a mainstream issue rather than like you know, something that just happens in minority communities. Um, and it was interesting. We kind of got legislation around it quite quickly as well when, when it became like a mainstream issue um, and more people became aware of it. So so domestic abuse, I think the first thing people think of is is maybe maybe more secular stuff. If I hear somebody works in domestic abuse, I imagine a guy in a, um, a you know, the wife beater traditional well, sleeveless yeah. T-shirt. Uh, having a few beers and you know uh, being violent towards his wife or something like that but you've mentioned it so you work more with religious stuff is is that right uh, I I wouldn't necessarily call it religious because although some of it is religiously motivated some of it is culturally motivated and the thing is what you'll find is when we want to have that discussion about um, religiously motivated abuse some people will always come along and go it's not religion it's culture the trouble is you can't unentwine those two, right? So um, 
generally what happens where there is um, a belief system, what it does is it kind of intertwines with religion like that. So you can't kind of separate the two. And what happens is some of the harmful practices within the faith and some of the harmful practices within the culture will sort of start working together to doubly harm. Yeah, that's interesting because we spoke to, we spoke as if I've got a big organization. Uh, <laughs> I spoke to um, Nimco Ali, who talks a lot about female genital mutilation. And she yeah. is a little bit ambivalent or maybe vague about uh, whether it's in an, an Islamic tradition or anything like that. And she, yeah. she will say that it's not, it's not religion, but also it's not culture really either. So um, I, I have a lot of respect for the women um, that have been kind of working against FGM, the practice of FGM for, you know, uh, decades now. However, I feel a little bit frustrated when they're not honest about like the links, right? Some of it, of course, is culture. Um, some of it is religion, you know, uh, for, from, from what I know about faith, uh, particularly Islam, you know, that was my family's uh, kind of faith. So I, I know that it existed there. Um, there are four different schools of faith, uh, yeah. four different schools of Islam specifically, sorry, that um, advocate FGM as a practice. Um, yeah. Now, with some, it's a case of they recommend circumcision. They don't specify whether it's male or female. Um, but uh, other schools of faith might say to, to um, circumcise both, right? So it depends on how that school of thought has interpreted the, the kind of um, the, 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 the scripture and the faith and what, what, what it says to them. Um, the other thing also is I, I understand why some activists are dishonest. And there is a dishonesty. I appreciate more so when somebody goes, yes, it's the case. However, we live in 2020 now or 2021 now, right? So let's move on from your ancient book. Um, I, the, I, it's, it's been harder for those wanting to prevent male circumcision because of its links with faith. That, yeah. And they're, they're, you know, they're, they're more concrete, the links with faith when, when it comes to male circumcision. However, um, it's been made slightly easier for F FGM activists because they can go, got nothing to do with faith. So faith communities can go, oh, it's not really an attack on us. However, what's been happening over time is, um, and I, I remember getting an email at the beginning of uh, the lockdown, actually, um, where FGM, the, those that want to continue the practice of FGM and safeguard the practice of male circumcision, what they've done is realize that there are some forms of FGM that advocate for like a prick or a nick or, um, you know, like a, a bit of stretching, like a ritual kind of um, mm. a ritualistic kind of nick, but not cutting away quite a lot of the clitoris or the parts of the female genitalia. Um, so what they've what they've started doing quite sneakily is saying that male circumcision does much more harm. So what we're what we're asking for is maybe that we meet the same threshold here so that women can be um, circumcised a little bit 
we can do the kind of minor forms of FGM so that there's consistency there, right? Which mm. the, that side is being consistent. Yet you're right. If you're pricking or nicking, I, I, I'm not for either, by the way. I don't think you should be able to, um, uh, you know, circumcise your boys or, um, or, or your girls. However, the FGM side, which I'm part of, you know, I've kind of advocated against that for years. Um, they, they kind of, it, there's a kind of hysteria when you talk to them about, okay, you do understand that some forms of FGM are considered less serious. They're seeing that. And through that, they're trying to um, argue for legalizing some forms of FGM so that there's the same level of harm or same level mm. of protection for boys and girls, right? Um, so uh, sometimes when you kind of, um, I think sometimes when you kind of try and bend and twist the truth so that you're more palatable to some yeah. people, it can do more harm than good, right? Truth is always um, difficult because sometimes you kind of have to you have to take quite a lot of backlash for telling the truth. Um, and when you start kind of dancing around facts so as not so as to protect yourself, because that's what it usually is, or to protect your campaign, um, in the end, it can actually be more harmful. Were you subjected to FGM or do you know people who were? No, thankfully not. Um, so thankfully, uh, that was one practice that wasn't, done within uh, the community I grew up in specifically. Mm. Um, but there were the stuff that was kind of normal in our community. So, um, you know, forced marriage and honor crimes was what what my community were more likely to do. Yeah, tell me a bit about your, your upbringing. It was tough, but not for the reasons people usually think. Um, the, the community I grew up in, um, quite conservative Muslim Pakistanis um, and they they're what we would probably now term as separatists um, they didn't want me to speak English at home mostly my grandparents you know my my dad and his brothers were born here my mom was born in Pakistan uh, my grandparents were born in Pakistan and came over in the 60s um, it was like early early 60s that they came over um and yeah they uh in in when they first came over they they wanted to kind of integrate into the main um as time went on they just became more and more insular you know where where i grew up used to be quite diverse and i mean truly diverse right not what we think of as diversity now we um we had sort of we had black people, brown people, white people. And even in those kind of groups, there was quite a lot of ethnic diversity. So there were like um, Indians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis. Well, not Bangladeshis at that time in the 60s. Africans, Caribbeans. It was really diverse, a real kind of mixed bag. Now, if you were to go to that same area, it's majority Pakistanis with a sprinkling, sprinkling of Bangladeshis. Uh, predominantly Muslim so even like the Indian people actually left so it's this kind there's this kind of concept of white flight right it's not just white people leaving those areas like everybody left right black people left Hindus left um, uh, white people left and now it's just 
Pakistanis as a majority in that area. Um, and they became more uh, tribal as well. So uh, growing up, um, I would speak English to my dad and his brothers and us siblings would speak English to each other. Um, however, our grandparents wanted us to speak Punjabi because they didn't want us to lose our mother tongue. Something that it, in an odd way I'm grateful for because I have another language, yeah. right? But at the same time, their motivation wasn't so that I'd have another language. Their motivation was don't become too westernized, right? It, like it had positives and negatives, I guess. Um, uh, and then our mum wanted us to speak Urdu because that's the kind of uh, higher class language of Pakistan. So she wanted us to be, she didn't want us to be as vulgar as the Punjabis. She wanted us to be Urdu speakers. So there was that that kind of thing going on in the house yeah. as well. So, this is crazy. What a crazy upbringing already. Your, your, your mind is in three different cultures at once. Mm, mm. Uh, so there's kind of quite a lot of overlap with the Urdu and, and Punjabi. I remember speaking Punjabi on purpose to my mum because it wound her up. <laughs> and I, I like my Punjabi is really, really good. My Punjabi is as good as okay. my English. How, can you Urdu... say, could you give me a, I want to hear what Punjabi sounds like, right? Because um, <laughs> can how do you, you're, ang- you're just saying like, oh, you know, uh, get out of the kitchen or why would anyone say that? No, you'd say... When we have when we having dinner, but you're saying it in Punjabi on purpose and not Urdu because you want to annoy your mum. Uh, it's yeah, just that, it's it. That does sound annoying. Yeah, I'd be annoyed yeah. if I were her. Um, but yeah, like she could speak Punjabi. It was just kind of like she had this um, mm. she had this kind of pomposity in her as well, uh, which was which was weird. Um, but yeah, so what the difficulty was that we were now. So my dad was born here, you were born here, we were the third generation, right? Um, However, we had a family who didn't want us to have any friends that weren't from the same ethnic and religious background as us. Remember when I uh, was my first day at school and my gran was praying, she used to pray every morning and I went and sat next to her. Um, She finished praying and she just turned to me and she said, don't make friends with any white people because they will lead you away from your religion. Um, now, imagine that same conversation in a white household. People would feel very comfortable calling it what it is, right? It's just It would just be classed as racism. Um, in the brown community, we know it happens because the brown community knows it happens, right? And the Pakistani community knows it happens. We are very, very aware of it. However, there they're okay calling themselves out to some extent most of them won't admit that it's racism some will um however um in mainstream society if others were to call out that behavior they have a bit more of a problem with it right um so yeah so it was the difficulty was that i grew up in england um in an area that was quite diverse but we were still we were still actually in terms of numbers a minority right um and i would see my white friends doing stuff and kind of socializing and interacting i didn't have good social skills because i was brought up to uh, only interact with like at home only interact with people from my own ethnic and religious background um i didn't know i didn't go to people's houses often um, if we did go, it wasn't a case of we're dropping you off for a play date. Um, 
it was a case of we're going to somebody's house and you're going along as well and you're just going to sit on the sofa with us type thing right um and i just grew up wanting to have a normal life like a lot of my younger white peers uh, which I wasn't allowed to ha to have, right? So I never went to a party, never did like a McDonald's birthday, play date. Um, you know, I didn't kind of do any of that kind of stuff. So when I left home, um, like understanding the world that I just entered into was a bit of a struggle. And I felt really, really, it felt like a fish out of water. Um, and that was on my family and my community, right? Because that's that's what they create. They create this kind of really insular community. And then when members of their community go out into the wider community, they um, they're not really prepared. Uh, 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 they're not prepared for what they're gonna like. What's gonna happen around them? How to interact with that? How to kind of just be a normal person in a in like British society? Um, but on top of that, what what was what was difficult was um like just learning the basics like of life i when i left home i didn't i didn't know that you had to buy toilet roll i just thought that was that was stuff that magically appeared and i was really shocked when i had to first go and buy loo roll it's just silly things like that right um and like i'd get like social things wrong all the time uh and i still do sometimes I still don't know if I'm always doing the right thing. I like second guess myself all the time. Like I doubt myself a lot um, because I wasn't brought up. It, I, even though I was born and raised in Britain, I, I, I feel like I, I grew up in Pakistan, <laughs> in England. So what you're saying sounds very similar to, uh, in some ways, to the ex-Hasidic Jew that I spoke to, Emily Green. They have a similar thing where some of them, yeah, they don't even speak English and they've grown mm. up in North London. Um, mm. And she was talking about how when she got out, she went to a an interview for a job that was uh, just some normal job or something, but it was quite a sort of posh job. And she just turned yeah. up in jeans instead of a nice whatever you're supposed to wear. And she had no idea because she'd her whole life seen people wearing jeans and stuff, but she'd never put yeah. two and two together and thought, okay, this is that's casual wear, that's that. They just see not Hasidic Jews is all they see. Did you have any yeah. of that as well? How? What about the dress code and stuff like that as growing up? So I, I kind of, um, everything was a little bit of a struggle, really. I kind of, um, I was a bit feral after leaving home for almost a decade. Mm. Um, uh, and I had to do a lot of figuring out. In terms of the dress code, because we, we had things like work experience at school, um, you kind of get a little bit of an insight. And I was lucky for a little while, I had a really good, I had one really good teacher for like a year. Um, and he he kind of, it was in the year that I was doing work experience. So he kind of, um, I went to him when I was gonna be going for the interview uh, for work experience. And he said, look him in the eye, just smart. like he told, he gave me all those kind of little tidbits. So I was lucky. I realize, though, that I'm luckier than a lot of young people growing up today in Britain from sort of um, ethnic and religious minority groups. Because when I grew up, we didn't have as many faith-based schools. We weren't as segregated as we are today yeah. back then. What was your school like? So I went to a normal straight state comprehensive school. Um, it was mixed. Um, and yeah, I, I, I consider myself quite lucky for that reason. 
because I had a little bit more kind of interaction with the world outside of the community that I was growing up in. I'm incredibly concerned when I see um, like ethnical religious ghettos that have also created schools within those ghettos where the teachers and pupils from within those communities are attending those same schools and that kid is not getting any outside involvement. Not only that, the teachers are then protecting any um, abuse occurring in the community, um, be it kind of um, physical, sexual or emotional abuse or any other kind of abuse occurring within the community. The teachers know that it's happening and actually have a vested interest in protecting the community. There, there needs to be some, like when a community becomes that insular, it also, there's high risk, higher risk of harm and abuse. There's also, they become a bit weird, just generally. Like you need to be interacting with different people, right? You need to learn about different, like it, how to kind of engage with the wider world. How did it come to a point when you ran away from home? So, um, yeah. <laughs> I had a white boyfriend when I was uh, when I was 15 in my last year of school and um, uh, there was kind of kind of quite a lot happening at that time the rumors started flying around one of the things that I didn't realize when I was 15 was that um, you kind of it's weird you know it but you don't acknowledge it as a kid um, that the whole community is watching you um, and also in terms of like the whole honor crimes and forced marriage discussion that started happening a lot later in my life there might have been people talking about it you know decades ago however when I was a kid um, it wasn't a mainstream discussion so because <laughs> uh, I had this white boyfriend and we lived in the thick of this community right in Oxford um, that was becoming more and more uh, kind of insular as I was growing up um, that it was all kind of getting reported back and forth nobody knew for a fact at that point but um, my grandparents started calling my, my dad up and saying look you've got to, you've got to deal with this girl she's getting out of hand um, meaning you've got to get her married off uh, that's always the kind of underlying uh, um, message get her married off get her married off as quickly as possible right um, so I could overhear this and I could hear my dad's voice going like he he'd been kind of pushing against the community for a long time. Um, but he didn't know for a fact whether I did have a boyfriend at that point. Did they, did they ask you? No, they, they found out because I ran away to his house. <laughs> were you excited with this with this boyfriend or was it were you in fear? Were you scared? No, I loved him. I adored yeah. him. Of being caught, I mean. Oh, um, no. No, at that time. So, again, it's, it's one of those weird things, right? Like, um, it, you kind of, that you, you know certain consequences could happen, but if you, especially as a young person, if you were to think about that all the time, you would go mad and you wouldn't be able to live, right? So as a young person, you don't necessarily let that stuff in. Bear in mind at this point, I've already told my mum that I don't believe in God. And she said, you can't tell anyone because we'll have to kill you, right? Uh, wait, wait, wait. She said that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but but with seriousness. So again, yeah, she said, she said it seriously, but I was 15. I almost didn't believe her, 
right? So she was saying this to me and I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm never going to talk to you about it again, but I also don't, I didn't let myself believe any of this. Um, even when they outright said it to me, I didn't let myself believe it. Um, so yeah, I ran away to this, uh, to this guy's house and then social care got involved. And, um, uh, what was interesting about that time though, was social care whilst this was all going on, brought with them to my mum and dad's house to speak to them, uh, an interpreter. Um, and I only found some of this stuff out really, really recently. I mean, in the last couple of years. Um, so I knew that they'd brought an interpreter with them. I didn't know what, what kind of this backstory, right? Um, and I was, I was annoyed that they had even bought the interpreter. My mum could speak English by then quite well. She'd been in the country for, you know, 16 years by that point. Um, my dad had uh, been born and raised in this country. His English is better than a lot of people, actually. And he didn't like us. Uh, you know, kids speak a lot of slang. He mm. used to really give us a, he'd give us a serious bollocking if ever we spoke any kind of slang. You know, if we dropped our T's or um, kind of tried to do any sort of street speak or anything like that. Um so his English was really good. There was no need for an interpreter. Um, anyway, this interpreter um, said to my parents, uh, she's going to be 16 soon and she's going to be able to do whatever she wants. So if you want to control your daughter, you've got to get her out of the country. So that's what they did at 15. The interpreter who was hired by social services. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, um, if, you, if you know anything about these services... Um, I, when I first went to uni, I did some interpreting work. I'm still registered with this interpreting agency. Uh, I never filled out a complete application form. They don't know anything about me. Um, they never did a CRB check. They have, they're not bound by the same confidentiality policies that you would be if you work in social care. Um, so yeah, that he could say that. Even if social care knew what he'd said, nothing would really happen. Um, so yeah, my parents went and dumped me in Pakistan where I starved and beaten and locked up. Oh my God, this is horrible. I'm so hot. I'm so sorry this happened to you. I mean, to be honest, I'm not that traumatized by it anymore. It took a long time to get over it. I'm, I'm you know, 35 this year. <laughs> um, so it's mm. nearly 20 years ago. Um, for the first 10 years or so after it happened, I was properly mad. Um, uh, you know, like, like properly, properly mad. Um, yeah. and, you know, um, it's hard to describe what I was actually like. Um, yeah. So, um, that, but the thing is what people don't understand is that we girls from within this community get into trouble for things that most people get to do. And nobody, nobody thinks it's an issue. So what I got into trouble for was having a boyfriend and that's it. <laughs> most, most girls my age had had several boyfriends by then, you yeah. know, um, and it wasn't really an issue. Um, so what, what are, what the, what parents like mine do and what parents from that kind of demographic in Britain do is they govern their children as if they're living in Pakistan, not as if they're living in England, right? Mm. Um, and they make their life hell. Um, 
and they're not letting them integrate. It's the parents not letting them integrate. It's not the children choosing not to integrate um, because the punishment for like interacting with the wider society in a positive way is being treated like a traitor for becoming too westernized you're treated as if like you've turned your back on your faith your culture and your country back home where you've never some some people have never even been mm. had you been to pakistan before before you were shipped out there and when they came and approached you and said right we're taking you to pakistan were there screaming rows were you were you pushing them away and going i'm not doing this or, or, or was it not that kind of dynamic where did you have to just sort of go so uh, they were very manipulative how they did it. Um, I was taken to the US so that I could turn 16 out there and then taken from the US to Pakistan. I was brought home for one day. Um, I didn't have a holiday in the US. I couldn't move anywhere, couldn't go anywhere. So it's like a, a kind of prison style situation there mm. as well, just in the US. The trouble is, again, people don't necessarily understand that... Um, like if I if I go to the US as a 15 year old in that community, I'm not getting to act and live like a US citizen would or a, or a holiday maker to the US would, because where the community is so insular, they can get away with whatever they want. Um, all of this said, though, um, I've always, always, always said that I was one of the lucky ones. I got brought back. I managed to leave the house again. Um, and I could have, I, they could have easily have murdered me out there and nothing would have happened. Mm. You know, there was a woman just a couple of years ago, Mary, uh, sorry, murdered out in Pakistan because the crime occurred in Pakistan. Um, the British police can't do anything that her parents are wandering around scot-free. Oh um, and Pakistan is quite happy to allow those kind of murders to happen because they still have that honor culture. What's happened in Britain is the importing of those, those kinds of um, practices and belief systems. And because we want to, because we're so, um, we're such cowards, what, mm. what we've done is said, oh, okay, we'll let this continue under the guise of multiculturalism rather than go, hang on, you're in England. There's some things that we don't do, like beat or kill our daughters, like hang homosexuals, like mm. disown our children, right? However, we, we're too cowardly to hold them to the same same standard. And we know, like, it, part of it is because the response is violence. It wouldn't have been, you know, all those years ago when my grandparents first came over. Now, because we've pussyfooted around them for so long, the response when you say or do anything to challenge some of these belief systems within the community, and I don't just mean their religious belief systems, I mean some of their cultural practices that are so outdated um, that we, we just, we just, we're so, we're so afraid of what their reaction is going to be that we just don't do anything at all when there's, you know, quite obviously abuse and harm occurring. Yeah, it's such a double standard. It really is. How, so yeah. take me take me into your mind then. So you're in America for and and you you know you're going to Pakistan at this point. Are, no, are you so think, you don't know? No, at that point they didn't tell me. What they did was um, so this is I was taken to at that time who he used to be my favorite uncle. Um, so what they thought they'd do is take me to Pakistan uh, and get him to get information out of me. I, I'd convinced myself that they weren't going to kill me. 
because they didn't know that I'd actually slept with this guy. Um, and I knew that was the one thing that would would change everything, absolutely everything. Um, so what they tried to do was get him and his wife to get information out of me for a few months. Right. Um, I was out there for, I think it was two and a half, three, two and a half or three months. Uh, I was 15 when I got there. I turned 16 there. Once I was 16, yeah. they brought me back for one day and it was just a transition flight basically. And then the mm. next day I was taken to Pakistan. Um, so what they did was play a bit of a long game. They knew that they wouldn't just be able to take me to Pakistan, right? Why not? Maybe they, they thought that I was going to be resistant. I'm, I'm not quite so, sure. So, but it was... Yeah, so you thought this was what, like a trip to America and that you might see your uncle and it was just a nice thing. I knew that they were trying to get information out of me. They ah. they sold it as we're going to take you to America. Um, because of them, I didn't get any GCSEs. That's one thing that I'm really pissed off about. So I had to do my maths and English a little bit later on. Mm. Um, but that really... Um, really kind of pissed me off um so yeah they took me to um took me to the us and then they concocted this story about some land and not being able to get the the rent from the the tenants of the land they were like we just need someone to go and go and do that for us you know get get some papers signed and and do that for us and dad and him were sat talking intentionally in a way where i'd hear it and i had nothing left at that point because um, there there was kind of violence and abuse going on in my uncle's house as well, like towards me. Um, he pinned me up by my throat a few times. He, oh. I remember we were driving in the car once and he wanted to find something out and he just slammed the brakes on and I kind of lunged forward and he just grabbed me by the neck. Um, and then he wanted to get information out of me, which I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't give them whatever they wanted. Each time I was just like, I know where that, that red line is that is just complete danger straight off right um so they they asked me uh, they were sorry um yeah so they were sat talking and uh, talking about this land situation and they're both like oh you know i can't go because i've got the job and i i just can't get away for long enough and by then i was like i haven't actually got anything left anymore i can pop over do whatever you need me to do and bring it back so I offered. That's how stupid I was. I oh. offered. It's not stupid, though. It's, I mean, what else do you know at that age? Right. Um, so they they organized everything. And then my dad um, basically dropped me off there and brought my passport back to England. So I was just stuck. There was nothing that I could do. Um, yeah, it was... It, that was a tough time. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a really tough time. Um, now, like for years after that, because they made me think that I had done something wrong, um, I kind of, like, I, I, I just, um, like I kind of blamed myself for my own conduct. Now, I wouldn't say that I did anything wrong because I was just, I was just a 15 year old kid who fancied a guy who fancied me back. Um, and you know, that was it. Yeah. That was it. There was nothing more to it. Yeah. I would, I never want to sort of make uh, rash judgments or anything like that, but I would 
I could say with 100% conviction that you did nothing wrong in that situation. I mean, you did everything right, it sounds like. That's gutting what happened. It's, it's, it's horrific. And I mean, how did it feel then? To, when, what, what was the moment, I suppose, that the rug was pulled out from under your feet and you realized like, oh, I'm, I'm not here for the reasons that they said. I'm here for some form of torture. It, it, was, it was within the, the week, within the first week that I was there. I started realizing what was happening. So my dad stayed with me for the first week or, or so. And then he left and I thought I was going to die out there. And I came close a couple of times. I was so malnourished by the time, the last time my dad came to see me. Um, he booked a flight for me to come back. He didn't want to share the same flight uh, back as me because he hated me. <laughs> um, so he booked a flight for me to come back. Um, I was like a useless lump of meat to them by then. Like I couldn't get married off because by then everybody thought I had had sex with a, a white guy. Nobody knew because that was the one thing that I wouldn't wouldn't give anybody. It would have just, I mean, like even even until very 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 recently, like they wouldn't have known, um, because that would have been the one kind of like I said that big red line that would have kind of definitely have led to me being killed um and that was one thing that i did know that was one thing that i couldn't even joke about in my mind what is it like having sex with somebody knowing that the sex could get you killed do you know what you don't think about it when you're having sex <laughs> it's not much of an aphrodisiac is it yeah you kind of uh, often or, or is it like... i suppose the excitement no i tell you what i i um I mean, this is very personal, to be honest, but um, mm, please. I didn't have an orgasm for years thinking about that. That was what the obstacle was, really. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, so that was, that, was that was probably the only thing that happened. It wasn't a case of mm. being afraid, but it definitely ruined the sex. <laughs> it ruined the ending because the sex wasn't so, such an issue, but it, it definitely ruined the ending. I couldn't get there. Oh. <laughs> it does seem to be very common, both men and women who have come from religious uh, families. We had you know, an ex-Mormon on here who was talking about a very similar thing. He couldn't enjoy, or a lot of them can't enjoy sex for years after leaving, uh, just yeah. the way it is. So yeah. what, I don't, what I don't get then is like they want to get information out of you. Why are they just not feeding you? Why are they not treating you like a basic human being in Pakistan at this point? Because they can. I mean, like, it, you know, they're not governed by the same... Uh, childcare standards but I have to say neither are we here there is still that double standard when it comes to the Pakistani community here I can't speak for every single community because I'm not a part of every single community but I do know that so the threshold for social care involvement uh, within the kind of Pakistani community and certain uh, com certain other communities is much much higher social care get involved at a much much later stage um, and they are not as heavy-handed as they would be when it comes to say a white British uh, child and family and I've, yeah. I've seen there is clear evidence of that I've seen it time and again they don't behave with them in the same manner they don't hold them to account in the same manner they don't challenge them in the same manner and that is unacceptable I mean the, the kind of um, the BLM lot 
who have mm. kind of, you know, brought anti-racism, they've turned anti-racism into a bit of a fashion statement, haven't they? Um, however, where there's actual racism, to me, this is where the actual racism does exist, right? Mm. Holding certain communities to a lesser standard, not holding them accountable in the same way. That's where I think racism actually exists. I don't think yeah. we have institutional racism in the sense that we don't have different laws for different people. We don't, uh, you know, our legal system doesn't kind of discriminate against people of different ethnic minorities, right? Um, however, the way institutional racism does exist is that they're not held to account in the same way. The law isn't applied in the same way. So the law itself isn't racist. It's the, the professionals that don't have the gut to apply the same um, the same kind of scrutiny to certain communities as they would do to the mm. white British community. They don't have the courage to uh, challenge abuse within those communities in the same manner as they would do in the, the white British population, right? You would yeah. never ever hear, if there was a white British young girl that said, do you know what, my dad is kicking the crap out of me or, um, like locking me up in the house because I wear a mini skirt, like social care would be pretty quickly involved and they would they would be outraged, right? However, they pussyfoot around culture and faith when it comes to the Pakistani community. What the fuck? Right? Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah. It does. It seems extraordinary, actually, because I guess what you're you're saying is you haven't felt uh, discriminated against in terms of going for job opportunities or the legal system, as you say, in many respects, in a in a positive for positive things, you're not left out. You feel as a person of Pakistani origin, uh, mm. but but there's a huge blind side, blind sight. There's a whole, huge blind spot mm -hmm. for. I mean, it seems extraordinary that what dominates the news and what we see, for example, in the before football games, for example, and we could leave America out of it because it's a far more complex picture in America that I don't totally understand. But in the UK, it does seem extraordinary that, you know, I'm watching football games and stuff and there's the whole, you know, get taking the knee and stuff like that, which I, I get it. But mm -hmm. we're talking about, you know, I think I, I think the amount of people who have been killed who are BAME, as in, what is that, Black, Asian, minority, ethnic, uh, in the UK by police is exactly proportional mm -hmm. to the amount of people there are in the country. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's only been like 20 people in tw 20 years or in 10 years or something who've yeah. been killed in police custody. And so, the, la the last mm, few, um, like, BAME folk, I don't really like that term, but to use their term, um, mm. that have been killed, actually it's been legitimate because you can't negotiate with a terrorist who is yeah. set to, you know, he thinks he's going to heaven. He thinks he's fighting for those 72 grapes. You know, he's not going to stop. So it's absolutely legitimate to, um, you, you kind of haven't got any choice. It's not like it. I'm saying it's legitimate, but perhaps not that that's not the right word because I, I find that very difficult myself. You know, I don't think I'd be able to pull the trigger, but I do think there is no other option in that situation, right? And to, I, I think I'm quite frustrated that um, like American racial politics has been brought to Britain because we're not America. Like I said, we, we kind of share, we sh the only thing we share is a language and barely that, right? The whole tomato, tomato thing. Uh, honestly, we're not the same country. And for the people that are desperately trying to pretend we are, they need a reality check. 
because it's just we've moved on so much um you know I, I remember going to a conference um a couple of years ago in Chicago and they were kind of having the whole race discussion out there I just can't get involved because I don't know what it's like in America I wouldn't like to guess I've not lived out there I'm not really interested in America even the tiniest bit um but I what I do know for a fact is things have improved significantly in this country. Um, I remember speaking to somebody who actually was involved in the whole anti-racist struggle when we had, you know, the National Front marching through the streets. Um, and I was saddened because she said, in terms of racism, things have never been so bad. And this is coming from a woman who saw the National Front march through the streets who experienced packy bashing and she is claiming that things haven't changed. I think she's so deluded, it's unreal. And I think also that um, like I really respect the work that she did and has done over like the last you know few decades. However, I think now it's um, I, I'm losing respect for those individuals because they are so clearly trying to maintain this lie so that they can ensure that their funding pots and their grants keep coming in mm. um and it's dis dishonest and disgusting yeah. if your if your job is a diversity officer or something like that in a company there are loads of jobs that have been given to those kinds of people because apart we, we went with the police statistics before and honestly i don't know them exactly but people look them up it, it is it's quite extraordinary how few people relative to other countries are killed by police in custody and how proportionally representative it is of of the demographics yeah. um but also we you know i've talked about it before on the podcast about the tv uh situation where bame people are doubly represented on on tv screens at the moment and yet the bbc are continuing to hire people who whose job profession you know their diversity officers so they they would lose their jobs unless they continued to find ways that they could say that things are uneven, that things are not right, and they have to change. It's like control freaks just to an extent. And I just think um, it seems crazy to me that you had to go through what you went through and that there are honor killings, that there are these kinds of torture happening. And on the one hand, I want to give the caveat that it, it also happens in the Hasidic Jewish community. It also happens mm. in the Jehovah's Witnesses. And then on the other hand, when I said something like that in a recent episode uh, with Yasmin Muhammad, and I, I put that online, I said, I just want to do the caveat before anybody thinks I've got a, an issue of Islam because we have done Mormons. We've done all the other mm. you know, Jewish and stuff. She said, but why are you putting that caveat? Because you didn't put that yeah. caveat for the other ones. So yeah. I sort of want to put the caveat and then put a caveat to that caveat that I shouldn't have done the original caveat. I don't like caveats. I don't think you should have to do that because I don't think there's anything wrong with, um, you know, having that discussion about the problems within Islam because there's so many of them. When it comes to having discussions about other faiths, we can have those discussions. But like you said, you don't need those caveats. A lot of these caveats, they're, we're doing them because the bully boys within those communities have gone crying to, you know, whoever they need to go crying to, to get their way. Um, to, to be able to, you know, create pathetic definitions like Islamophobia. And by the way, I mean, I don't, I don't take issue with Islamophobia, really. I think, um, I think there's every reason to be frightened of an ideology that kind of threatens to harm anybody that criticizes it. I think that there, there is absolutely every re reason to be afraid of that and equating that to any, you know, to equating that to something like homophobia, 
where there's no actual rational reason to be afraid of homosexuals is quite offensive. I mean, your life story is a reason. I mean, you have every right to be afraid, literally the phobia to be afraid of, of Islam. Yeah. So for years, every time I saw a brown face, I would, I would be terrified. There's, there were certain areas that I wouldn't go into. There were certain things that I wouldn't do. There were certain places I wouldn't go. Um, you know, it was a genuine threat to my life. And that carried on for many, many years. It's taken me a long time to put myself in a place where I can speak and be safe and not have to look over my shoulder constantly. And that was something that I had to really, really fight for. And I think that we underestimate the, the kind of scale of the issue within that community. There are so many women and girls living like that. There are so many young lads living like that. It, it, depending on how conservative the community is, even the lads aren't getting that, that, that kind of leeway to live their life the way they want to. And there ends part one of the interview with the wonderful Sadia Hamid. It was really enlightening hearing her views on religious fundamentalism and quite sobering listening to what her family put her through in Pakistan. We go back to that time and delve further into what it was really like for her in part two, which will air in a couple of weeks, sandwiching between it an interview with David Robson, author of The Intelligence Trap. The book is about the way the cleverest people in the world usually make more stupid mistakes, which is why I never make any mistakes. And he'll be giving advice as to how we can all make fewer errors and improve our logical thinking. This week, my new patron was Anna Cooper, who I speak to often on Instagram and always has great insights about the shows. She'll, of course, be among the 30 or so patrons who got this episode almost a week early and without adverts. Usually there is bonus material too, and you can get that on patreon.com slash andrewgold. Otherwise, get hold of me on andrewgold underscore OK on Instagram and Twitter. And find Sadia on Twitter and Instagram on Sadia936. And you should also check out her Four Freedoms YouTube page. Um, one of the interviews is actually going to be with me. So that's, that's something, isn't it? Thanks for all your reviews on Apple. This is from Liam in France. Amazing. Just gets better and better. Love this podcast and recommend I'm Not a Monster. Great stuff, Andrew. I'm Not a Monster, of course. He's referring to Josh Baker's uh, podcast about going to ISIS. That was out a couple of weeks ago, uh, his interview with me, my interview with him. Uh, thank you, Liam. Uh, and this one is a three-star review from and sign at sign 59 in reference to episode 18 the prison call with bobby coldwell who killed his girlfriend by accident in a botched suicide i understand you had serious tech difficulties in interviewing him but i can't believe this huge elephant in the room question was never asked so he verbalized his suicidal thoughts to his family and sought help for it his self-destructive behavior was there for everyone to see so why on earth there was a gun in the house I felt like bumping on your conversation as, hello. So I remember that episode, but not well enough to know what I did ask or didn't ask. This very person, which is at sign and sign, no, and sign at sign 59, uh, left a three-star review last week as well, but then deleted it when I challenged it on here. So here's my challenge this time, and sign at sign 59. Um, I would say that I think I did mention that the gun situation is very, very different in the United States. And it's something that's hard for us to understand and to get our heads around in the UK. 
uh, they just have guns. They just, they just, it's just a thing they have. They just have guns. But I agree a hundred percent with you that it's not ideal for a mentally ill person to have a gun in his house. And you know, we saw what happened, of course, to to his girlfriend. I mean, he killed her by accident. Um, anyway, I hope you enjoyed the rest of that episode and sign at sign fifty nine. And I'm happy you're continuing to listen to them with a critical eye. There's a four-star review as well from Bikaz746, who writes about my episode of female genital mutilation and male circumcision with Nimco Ali, a problem. Most rabbis absolutely do not engage in any type of lip-slash-blood-slash-penis sucking. For her to not know that is ridiculous. If she's going to discuss male circumcision, she needs to get this basic aspect correct. I hate the ADL, and I think they do more harm than good, but that penis-sucking nonsense actually does harm. The ADL they refer to is the Anti-Defamation League, and I don't know enough about them to respond to that. But I think she raises a good point, one that I think I raised myself with Nimco, uh, that I don't think most rabbis do that, and it's more of an orthodox thing. And it's it's creepy as hell. I think it does it does happen. I mean, even, even because 746 said most rabbis don't. So I think some do, maybe. Oh, and make sure to join the Discord chat room Thursday at 7pm GMT. That's UK time. Uh, I'd love to get chatting to you all. Anyway, that's it for this week. I look forward to bringing you David Robson and his intelligence trap next week. 